Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, Head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at the Antidote Festival in 2019. But before we get into it, one last thing. How about you rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app? It helps other people find us. Also, you can find more podcasts from Sydney Opera House at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts. But now, enjoy the show. Is the answer really written in the stars? Can eight hours safely wrapped in Netflix really provide respite from the grim state of the world? In today's episode of Ideas at the House, Vice Media UK's Zing Zeng, The Guardian's Bridget Delaney and Junkie's Patrick Lenton will be confessing pop culture obsessions and asking what exactly we're trying to escape. There with Faustina Agoli. Hey everybody, how are we feeling? <laughs> uh, welcome to uh, this afternoon's talk on self-care here at the Antidote Festival. Welcome, welcome. Uh, my name is Faustina Rigoli and today we have a lovely panel of Opera House debutantes. Uh, we have uh, Vice Media UK's executive editor and writer of the Forgotten Women series, Zing Seng. Hello, Zing. Hi. <laughs> Senior writer for The Guardian and author of Well Mania, Bridget Delaney. And entertainment editor at Junkie and author of A Man Made Entirely of Bats, Patrick Lenton. <laughs> hey. Okay, so this, today's topic is about self-care and, I mean, I can't avoid the obvious roots of self-care um, and its definition. And I think that perhaps my idea of self-care and what, what its roots are, its true roots are, are is different for, for everybody. And um, I guess we're not really framing this self-care discussion about the, the African-American roots and the political roots, but we're probably going to steer off into something, into the world of the mainstream in which it, how it predicates our lives today. Um, but Zing, like, how do you define self-care? I mean, I totally sympathise with your, how you feel about how it's been kind of taken from this African-American activism um, circles and kind of commodified completely. So my understanding of self-care as it is now is that it's been totally commercialised and in many ways it's about consumption more than it is actually about caring for yourself. It's mm. about buying things, purchasing objects, buying experiences, you know, like luxury facials, pedicures, yoga retreats, experiences, stuff like that. And it's become less and less about what you do to take care of yourself, but more about what you can do and purchase to show off to other people. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Patrick? <laughs> yeah, I, like, I, I completely agree with you, but I, I think it is such a huge uh, buzz term at the moment that it encompasses so many different things. Doesn't it? Um, but I also think that one of, the, one of the important things to note about it is that people do, like, do need self-care at the moment. Whether or not that is a unique thing for our current times or if it's always been there, it's just being renamed to something else, people, need, people seem to need uh, a, an outlet, a... Uh, some sort of um, some sort of release, some sort of 
uh, way to look after themselves that maybe uh, hasn't been happening. And like um, a, a lot of what I write about is how millennials are using uh, like TV and binge watching culture as their primary and sometimes only form of self-care, which is like dangerous and also really great for Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of shows are they getting into? Well, this, like, this is the crazy thing. We're, we're, like, we're, we are in the golden age of prestige TV. Uh, like, what does that mean, prestige TV? There's more, there's more, like, there is more money being put into TV than ever before. There's more outlets. People are watching more TV with all the streaming and everything like that. So we're getting these huge, high-budget things like Game of Thrones, which are you know, creating these massive conversations. And yeah, people are watching those. But numbers-wise, everyone is just re-watching Friends. Like, <laughs> like absolutely. Um, uh, especially demographically, it just was, uh, like, it was just released um, recently that um, teens are overwhelmingly watching The Office, Friends, uh, Gilmore Girls and Parks and Recreation, and this is a, these are US numbers actually, because um, that's they're all on Netflix US, not here. Um, and uh, does it ever say why? Because they weren't even alive when Friends was out. I mean, I mean, as we all remember from like from our own youth, the Friends uh, behemoth marketing thing, it just still rolls on, and I think it's like seeped into the topsoil in ways that we don't really understand, and it's still poisoning generations to come. <laughs> Bridget, how, how do you sit with the term self-care? Firstly, I've just got to say, Seinfeld is far better than Friends, and um, <laughs> I am shocked and appalled at a Gen, Gen Z for this. Is it Zed? Uh, I mean, yeah. millennials and Gen Z. But I will just very quickly say that the reason Seinfeld isn't a contender is because it's not on any major streaming yet. There's still a bidding war for right. it. Wait until that happens. Yeah. yeah. No one will be going to work anymore. Everyone will just be in a Seinfeld coma. Um, so I, I wrote a book about wellness a few years ago, um, and I don't use the term self-care just purely because um, it's got a really specific origin, which is... Um, when African-American activists, particularly women, were fighting for social change and, and very depleted and very unsupported by the mainstream, they would say, we need to retreat and have some self-care before we go out onto the barricades. So it's got a really specific racial um, and cultural background. And I'm writing about $5,000 yoga retreats in Bali. And I just thought, I, I'm not going to call this self-care because it is... Um, a real bastardization of the term. Um, so I use wellness, which is also a terrible word just because it's, it's kind of clunky and it's, it's probably a non-word. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's... When I started researching Wellmania, which was many years ago, um, the retreats that people were going on were primarily religious. So if you... Or, or there were meditation retreats in, like, terrible... Um, two-star kind of caravan parks in winter in Hillsville and, you know, some burnt-out hippie was, was, who'd been in India was teaching, you know, various meditation techniques. And over that time, I've seen that scene transform into something that is now worth billions of dollars um, and has become almost like a human right, like you have a human right to wellness. Um, and so it's been interesting to chart. What... About what about your life kind of compelled you to explore the world of wellness? Um, 
I was compelled... So I grew up Catholic, no longer practising, but I was always... I had a, an, an urge every year to retreat, to go away, to have a time of contemplation, and there was nothing in the mainstream that kind of allowed for that. And um, so I'd go to these weird religious retreats of religion that wasn't even my own um, and use that time to reflect and then start the year afresh. And as time went on... Um, I noticed that there were more and more options, and they really picked up pace in the era of um, smartphones. So as soon as smartphones came along, everything changed so radically. Um, suddenly, instead of having a demarcation between your, your life and your work, so when you finished work, you would go home, you wouldn't be getting... There was no way for your boss necessarily to reach you um, or, you know, there was no way for large groups of people to comment on what you'd just posted or what you were doing or what you were wearing. Whereas now, that's, that kind of social media and texting and everything is a 24-hour cycle. And so as that has happened, there's been this increased need for people to carve out real kind of bubbles of, of, of silence and space to, to almost get over that. Mm, mm. Um, so, Zing, what, I mean, you're, you're based in the UK. Mm -hmm. It is pretty... Things are popping off in the UK yeah, right no. now. I mean, when we get off stage, who knows if there'll even be a government anymore? It's exciting <laughs> times. <laughs> it's so intense. Like, what are you personally shielding yourself from so that you can focus on you? I mean, it's interesting because the one thing I will note about your boss not being able to reach you, a really good way to do that is to fly 23 hours to the other side of the world <laughs> and be in a different time zone because my boss is definitely not reaching me right now. Um, I mean, I think in the UK, especially because of what's been going on with Brexit and so on, um, a lot of people are retreating and, you know, there's more of a discourse around needing to, like, go away and turn off um, you know, I've said it to myself before where I just, you know, I'll say things like, I just really need to, like, not look at my phone for tonight. I really need to turn it off, put it on aeroplane mode, not even engage with it. Um, but then the problem is, I think, is that so much of our modern lives demand that we be plugged in constantly. So whether or not it's email or social media, just not being plugged in could have enormous ramifications on your career prospects, uh, your social life, right. um, your ability to communicate with your friends and family. You know, for, I've, I'm often the person in the group WhatsApp who just lurks and stays silent to a point where people are like, is Zing still alive? What's she up to now? Yeah. Um, and I would dearly wish that I could just leave, but I, something about it compels me not to. I can't exit these kind of uh, mediated conversations because I feel like somehow I'll be missing out. And I think that's one way in which that you know, the entire idea of self-care, switching off, plugging yourself, uh, taking the plug out, you know, whatever, is actually not very possible in today's day and age. It's pretty much near impossible to turn off. Mm. And we were just saying earlier that... Um, so I have changed my settings on Twitter, so I don't see a lot of negative tweets, and so yes. therefore Twitter's like a really fun experience for me. <laughs> but um, I'm the only one in the world. Um, but Zing was saying, but what about if you get cancelled without your knowledge? And how are you going to know that half the world hates you and you've said something terrible. And I think that's the question now is like, maybe it's good not to know and to escape that loop. But, but also like so much of the conversation happens so quickly online. Right. You know, if you're not there, 
watching, you like you could actually miss out on something that is, you know, maybe relevant to our jobs, for example. Mm -hmm. um, like one of the weird things about being an entertainment editor in Australia is that I wake up expecting the news to have happened because, you know, the US has basically released all the TV shows or all the trailers for the films are coming out. And so the most stressful point of my day is absolutely when I wake up and immediately look at my phone to find out what I have to write about all day. And because it could be um, that, like, you know, yet again, all of Hollywood are sex offenders, you know, um, and, and, and therefore that's what I have to write about. Um, or it could just be that Star Wars has released a trailer and I'm like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> you know? Can we get a bit personal for a moment and talk about some of the things that you adopt away from your jobs? Um, Patrick, you went through a big life shift and uh, it required you to investigate your life a little bit more deeply. <laughs> um, I'm not going to get into details, I'm just going to let you tell whatever details you want to do. Yeah. Um, I think, so part of the brief was talking about um, the kind of astrology uh, craze that's happened at the moment, which is, once again, seems to be a very huge millennial trend. Um, and, uh, and it seems like everyone can suddenly speak astrology to each other. Like it's, yeah. It's <laughs> Some a, really popular Instagram accounts. Yeah, oh, it's, mm -hmm. it's huge. But I don't really meet anyone who takes it seriously. Like, even though we can speak the language, we're not, you know, like, we're not actually being like, I genuinely believe the planet's influencing me right now. It's sort of like, it's a way of maybe responding and investigating the world uh, in a sort of fun way, I don't know. Okay. But, but what, so what, um, so what this was about was I um, uh, had a huge, huge, huge breakup and then was like, okay, I need to change my life entirely, as one does. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, and I, so I was trying a whole bunch of things, like a whole bunch of big things. At one point I was applying to work as a dog trainer off a small island in Canada. <laughs> um, but at the same time, a very prestigious uh, writing MFA in, in, like, in the US. So like, I was like, mm, which one? <laughs> um, and, uh, and I decided that because like, cause everything was so chaotic in my life and I just didn't really know what I was doing, I was, you know, uh, living back with my <laughs> parents again. Um, and I was like, I'm going to look towards astrology to help me. Um, and because I'm a Virgo, <laughs> I... What does I, that mean? Was your Virgo? I, it, means, it means that I wouldn't just do it half-heartedly. I had to do it with schedule and rigor and, um, and, and, like, and of course, a spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> so what I did was I subscribed to um, 12 different astrology apps and then and bookmarked five different big astrology websites. And every day I would get up and I would look up the Virgo horoscope and then I would put it all into my spreadsheet and pull out what each one uh, referenced to find if there was one point of truth in it. And because then I could be sure that like across the field, that would be the one thing, and that would help me find my way forward in life. That is a very Virgo thing to do. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, and it, 
it didn't work. <laughs> it just made me very confused, but very organized about it. <laughs> okay, so a failed mission, but a productive one. Uh, it was fun to, oh, fun and p potentially useful to think strategically about my life, even if I was using a flawed system and potentially an insane one. <laughs> What's your like North Star now, though? Now that you you know you've had this experience where you've been told many different things from many different sources that claim some kind of authority in guiding your life. Mm. How do you guide your life now? Um, I live in a pit of existential despair. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. <laughs> but I'm enjoying myself in there. <laughs> okay. Okay. What are you focusing on now in terms of healing from this despair? Um, the office. <laughs> okay. The TV show or the, the real thing? Oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably both, no, the TV show. Wait, the US or the UK office? <laughs> US. Oh. Sorry, sorry. The UK office isn't very good to binge for, sorry. Really, no, it's not. Really just shitting on my own country now. <laughs> yeah. I just find it very depressing. Like, honestly, me too, it's not made for these times in many ways. Plus, it's also more depressing now that we know how much of an ass hat Ricky Gervais yes, is. Yes, very true. <laughs> are we, are any of us binge watching anything else right now? <laughs> I spend so much time on the internet that I actually had to make a choice between television or the internet, okay. otherwise I'd never read. So oh, okay. I chose the internet. Okay. Yeah. Is it just reading for leisure or is this always tied in with your work somehow? Um, there's no difference between work reading and leisure reading, it's all just reading. But um, I think since, you know, just to pick up my earlier point, like since screens came into our lives in a really big way 10 or 15 years ago, we now have this extra element. And I think at night, if you want to switch off, um, you know, I've seen some people have a book in one hand, their phone in another, and watching television. Uh, so, you know, you can't do it all. So I think you've got to make a choice. Um, so I, I bought this like very old crumbly 1850s cottage in the countryside that doesn't even have a TV aerial. Um, it's really hard to get internet there. Um, so I've got like a dongle and I've got like thousands of books. So I kind of go there, hole up and just, just read because um, I have internet binging tendencies. Okay, so that's your boundary. Yeah. You literally have to remove yourself from mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. high tech society. I'm an addict, yeah. Zin, can we talk about some of your personal practices? Oh, I mean, they're two very different things, but I started weightlifting and then I started gardening. So now I'm just, so now I'm just a really hench grandmother. Really. Um, and to be honest, the way I started gardening was because I was getting really quite worried about Brexit and there were all these things in the news about uh, food shortages, which apparently are still going to happen. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to start growing vegetables really proper kind of World War II-esque kind of blitz. I really got into this whole, like, I'm going to garden, I'm going to grow veg, I'm going to, you know, pickle things, and then, you know, if everything falls apart during Brexit, I'll have my jar of pickled carrots. Um, and that's what I do. So now I garden and I lift weights. So, what are you going to do about medicine, though? I you mean, have to create your own lab to... Yeah, so... I'm now starting to look into herbal medicine, so I'm starting to grow plants that might have some herbal properties. But it's this whole thing. I mean, like, 
one, the thing about self-care is that I think you would really struggle to find someone tell you that weightlifting and gardening, a combination of the two, is a form of self-care, but that's literally just what worked for me. And I think it's so individual when it comes to taking care of yourself that you really just need to figure it out for yourself. Do you notice that people do get hooked in on the fads? Have you seen that in your friendship circles? Yes. I mean, I've hooked in on fads, you know. I've definitely bought the bath bomb and let it dissolve in a bath and taken a really unsatisfactory hot bath and been like, I don't feel any more relaxed. I just feel stressed out and wrinkly now. <laughs> so, you know, I feel like I'm just as much uh, vulnerable to the kind of, like, self-care purchasing hype as anyone else. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, we do have to make our failures in order to find, like, our thing, right? Exactly. What, what has been... Have you had, do you have any hilarious stories? Surely you do, Bridget. I've got a million of them. Um, I guess the, <laughs> the worst one, um, I did it for Sunday Life magazine, was uh, there was a... Malcolm Turnbull had lost an incredible amount of weight really quickly and everyone thought he had cancer, but it turns out he was actually um, on a Chinese herbal detox at bon with this guy at Bondi Junction. And so this magazine said, would you do this detox? It involves not eating anything for two weeks and then Literally only... Literally nothing. Nothing. And then like a tiny bit of food every day for 101 days afterwards. And um, I was like, sure, you know, no worries. And um, I'd never even been on a diet, so I wasn't used to deprivation. And I rocked up quite hungover with a large latte to this... Um, Herbal herbalist got weighed. He told me that my organs were being suffocated by um, internal fat and that I had to do this, otherwise I'd have, you know, dreadful health outcomes. But if I didn't eat for 101 days, then I'd never need to see a doctor again for the rest of my life. So I signed up and didn't actually eat anything for two weeks, um, but was in a world of pain. Like, I could barely get out of bed. And then when I did get out of bed and I'd try to cross the road, I'd almost get hit by cars because oh I was God. so lightheaded. Um, once I followed a guy down the street who was carrying a pizza box <laughs> and the smell <laughs> was so intoxicating that I went about a kilometre out of my way until I got to his front door and, um, yeah, I used to stand outside the window of pastry shops and <laughs> cry. Um, and, yeah, it was a, a really... I still can't believe I did it. Like, it was so strange. And... Um, I was losing like enormous amounts of weight, but I was also having like heart palpitations and oh I stunk. I was just, it was, I was just all over the place. Where did the smell come from? Well, I thought it was coming from a bin outside my window. Because um, <laughs> backpackers used to sit in this park and eat, um, eat rotisserie chickens. And I thought that they hadn't disposed of the chicken carcasses, but... When I closed the house up and went back to bed, because I'd spent the whole two weeks in bed, because I was too fatigued to do anything else, I noticed that the smell was actually me, um, and that some, I, I must have been kind of rotting from the inside. But the herbalist didn't... He wasn't, he wasn't able to give me proper answers. Um, English wasn't his first language. He was really busy. Uh, he was later shut down by New South Wales Health. Um, so, what a surprise! Uh, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting experience. Did you go the full 101 days without eating after? So I went actually quite a long way in, and then I was unemployed at the time, so I, 
helps to say that because I didn't have anything else to do and I didn't need the energy for anything. Um, and then I got a job and I found that eating 50 grams of chicken every three days uh, was not enough to be a news editor of a, of a news website. Um, so it started with one coffee, then it ended up with five coffees and, you know, now I'm just back to, back to my bad old habits. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was weird. Whoa. So it wasn't self-care at all. It was like self... Sabotage. Yeah, whatever the opposite of Annihilation. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, from your book, though, Well Mania, were there any nuggets of goodness that you got out of the experience? Like, things that yeah. you still adopt today? I think meditation's so great. Like, I can't recommend it enough. I mean, one of the things I looked for in the book and in the whole industry is, like, what does this cost? Like, how much money does this thing... That's is this thing going to cost you? And... Once you've done it, do you have to keep going back to the thing to get the benefits? So are you paying again and again and again? Um, or are you being taught something that you can then practice in your own home, in your own space for free? Um, so meditation was one of those things, like I learned Vedic meditation, uh, and it's twice a day, 20 minutes each time. And I, I liken it to having like shock absorbers in a car. So it just doesn't get rid of life's problems, but it means that you don't feel the, if you're in traffic or if, you know, something's bothering you or if you suddenly feel angry, there seems to be extra padding between you and the emotion. And I think that's a, a really great skill to have. Um, so that was really helpful. And I mean, now in terms of kind of self-care or wellness, I'm thinking a lot more about rather than individual practices, I think there's a lot of like, care of, that we can take of each other. And that's where I think the next phase of this is, is collective care. So like, how can we, how can we help our communities? How can we help our friends? Like, I think when you start caring for other people, you're also caring for yourself. And, um, and there's no money in that, the market can't touch it, but it's the only way through. How are you doing it right now in your life? Oh, well, <laughs> um, good question. But my neighbour, um, my neighbour recently left her husband and had to leave quite quickly and the entire street turned up at her house and just moved everything out for her. Like, so this was a neighbourhood and it was very, you know, I haven't seen that for a long time of, of mm. a, at, at a street level, people hearing that this woman needs a hand and everyone just sitting on her house with trailers and, you know, helping her pack stuff, getting her out of there. Um, and so that was that was really good to see. Mm, mm. Yeah, there's an, there's a really excellent program in London where I live. Uh, I can't quite remember what it's called, but the idea is pretty unique. So I reckon if you wanted to Google it, you could find it. And it's where groups of people gather to run, gather on a running trail around a city, and each stop off is uh, an elderly person who needs help moving something. Mm. So. Uh, it could be someone, like an elderly neighbour who needs help moving a dresser and then you'd run there, help them move the dresser and run on to the next one. Or it could be an elderly person who needs help with their garden, so you'd run there, dig up their garden for them and do whatever needs doing and then you'd run on. Um, I actually did look into doing this but then realised I hated running a lot more than I loved gardening. <laughs> so I'm still looking for things to, like that to do. But that's the kind of thing where I think that's... It's really special and it combines a lot of what people think self-care should be about with actual doing good in the community, which is what Bridget's talking about. Mm. Patrick? Um, I was just thinking, uh, after the, um, the 
aforementioned breakup uh, when I was like trying to find literally anybody else in the world uh, to <laughs> to become friends with or to you know so I could stop hanging out with like all the people who I used to hang out with because we shared friends. They were linked, yes. Yeah, I was like. Uh, and I've always been a very solitary person, like, you know, mm. just love reading a book. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I should get a hobby. Um, and, uh, and I did. And then I found out that, like, having a hobby means that you have a community of people around you. And the more that you invest in that time and the more, you, you know, you kind of get to know the people around you, the more that they support you and you, you know. So, like, I recommend hobbies um, as, a, as a form of self-care, because it is, because it, like, it's a social, uh, yeah, it's social self-care, um, and like, uh, and so my particular awful hobby is um, improv comedy, so um, I don't recommend that to anyone else, um, but, <laughs> but it's good for me, um, but like, but that means that like every week I have like I have a show to go to. I have a um, like I have a rehearsal on Tuesday nights. We hang out on the weekends. We you know we do like you know there's a broader sort of comedy scene that we're a part of. So we're always doing those sorts of things. And it just means that like after sort of being like oh no, who like there's not many people out there. Suddenly I'm just like oh there's always something you know. Yeah. Um, so that, that is now my main form of self-care. Plus, getting on stage is very important for someone who needs as much attention as I do. <laughs> <laughs> do you think as well that our workplaces need a massive overhaul so that we're not run to the ground and need to kind of look outwards for, for things to kind of soothe us? Because we do live in a world where it's never nine to five anymore. Like, we always need to be on. As you said, Zing, like, yeah. we're always switched on. Yeah, I think so. And I think that it's funny how the things that we've just mentioned, like, you know, exercise, having a hobby, helping out your neighbours, they're all quite old school <laughs> things <laughs> that we'd associate with your, our mums and dads telling us to do, like, oh, it's a good thing if you help your neighbour. You know, it's just really dumb and self-evident. And yet we've worked ourselves up into this frenzy where it's like, what will fix me? I know a $128 goop routine that means I have to take 15 pills a day to make myself feel more energetic. Like, you know, I think the real answers are, are probably way more simpler and straightforward and probably right in front of us than they are, you know, on Gwyneth Paltrow's website. And I do think that, uh, you know, the current state of, you know, the world of work, for instance, where we always need to be switched on, where we have to always be aware of how we're looking to the outside world, where we're looking to, you know, external forces to tell us how we think and how we're doing and what we look like. You know, I think that is part of what's driving us towards um, these, I don't, I don't want to call Gwyneth a charlatan, because, you know, she's really good in Shakespearean love. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they're driving us towards people who probably just want to make money off us. Right, right. Mm. Patrick? Um, I, I think uh, there, there's this um, great essay by a BuzzFeed writer named um, Helen N. Peterson called The, uh, the Burnout Generation. Um, and it's basically the uh, too-long-don't-read of it is um, that millennials are always working. Um, and even if they're not actually physically doing the act of working, they're stressed about not working because there's so much about like instability in in work. You know, like very gig economy. Yeah, gig economy. Uh, like you know, there's there's more more people doing contract roles than there are full timers. You know, part time, blah blah blah. 
uh, everyone, everyone I know has a side hustle. Um, you know, like everyone is doing something else. I'm like, I always thought that I was just like, I like I love working. I really do. And so like, so when I work on Saturday and Sunday mornings, I always thought that was me. But I found out that like that's actually a bit of a generational sort of thing. Uh, like people uh, sort of always doing that. So self care has become a kind of necessary outlet for like for having to stop like for, for the ability to actually stop working and stop stressing about working i think and like it's not just a millennial thing like that's just what the article focused on i think um but i think it's more and more rare for people to actually have the capacity to properly switch off from their jobs um i mean i haven't had a job uh in the last seven years where, where i haven't had to kind of vaguely keep an eye on a work social media account, you know, just in case something terrible is happening, such as former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd challenging us to a handball game while everyone else has gone home. And I'm like, uh, uh, I, I guess I have to respond to former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, <laughs> uh, you know, and if I don't do that in the right way on a Friday night when I'm three wines in, that could have like a bad career sort of response yeah. for me, you know? I don't think it was a Friday night. <laughs> Any structural changes that you would love workplaces to adopt, Bridget? Um, four day weeks. Uh, and that's a serious kind of, I think that's a serious point that like uh, some New Zealand firms have done it. Uh, so corpor corporations bring in will and wellness experts at great cost. Um, to give massages, to do talks, there's therapies. However, they're not addressing the, the basic fact that people are stressed, overworked, often doing six-day weeks, um, worried about the future. So if work was designed a bit more equitably, um, you could get everyone working four days, have that one day off to actually be with their community, to be with their family, um, and not have to go and, you know, run out in your lunch break to have a 30-minute Chinese massage because you are so kind of yeah. wound up and tight. Um, I think it can happen, you know, but uh, one thing that has really influenced um, possibly why we need self-care and why we're working so hard is house prices. And, you know, it's, you know, it's been, what, how many years now? 17 or 18 years where house prices have got to the point where like the average person in the average job can't afford them and if they can get a mortgage, they're constantly stressed about paying that mortgage. Um, and so living in that society where to get a basic roof over your head means you can never really relax. You're always worried about your job and you might be on a rolling one-year contract so you're never quite secure. Mm. Um, we have to fix kind of structural things in society like housing, like how we, we structure our um, employment contracts, uh, like things like superannuation. If you're in the gig economy, you know, you, you often don't get super, so you end up having to work till you're 75. Um, so rather than paying for someone to come into your workplace to give you a 15-minute hand massage, you know, let's just look at the underlying issues and... Have a Marxist revolution. Look, yes. <laughs> uh, there's this um, uh, in South Korea. There's like such a uh, sort of structural inequality for particularly young people there. Like um, something like half of their suicides for people 
uh, in, the, uh, in their 20s is, um, well, no, is in people in their 20s purely because of this, like, they, they're shut out of the job market. Uh, real estate is, uh, in a, uh, like, unapproachable. They, like, they spend all their money from their uh, jobs on rent and everything. And so they've uh, invented this term, which is, like, a, a big pop culture term called um, Shibao Byung, um, which basically roughly translates as a fuck it fund. Um, and it's absolutely a kind of capitalistic self-care thing where it's, like, we're never going to be able to afford a house. We spend all of our money on rent. We're never going to be able to, uh, you know, like escape climate change. Um, and everything is essentially uh, against us. So I might as well just buy this nice pair of shoes because, you know, the world is going to end in 15 years anyway. Um, and it's huge. Like it's, um, and so, but like, but also much like with pretty much all self-care, it has become commodified. Now brands use Shibao Byung as like a sort of trending sort of thing, and it's become this whole sort of like, like, come and like, come and have a Shibao Byung sale, uh, you know, like uh, all that sort of thing. So. I mean, it's kind of the point that Naomi Klein made in No Logo 20 years ago, which is there's a the market has a product, people rebel and start their fuck it fund, mm -hmm. and then the market cannibalizes the reaction or the revolution and turns the reaction and revolution into another product. Mm. So it's almost like, um, you know, an animal eating its tail. And until we can escape that loop um, of the market taking our vulnerabilities and our kind of attempts to rebel, um, and, and claiming them for themselves. I think we're in a bad place. Mm, mm. We're going to get to the last question here, so, and then we're going to go out to, to all of you. So if you have any questions, um, you can make yourselves... Um, you can make your way over to the two microphones on either end of the um, space here. You can do so now, just so we can save some time. Um, yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Are, are you... Are you in, where are you at now with your view with consumerism. Are you rebelling against a lot of things now? Are you being, like, clearly you're far more discerning. I, with consumerism, I think it's been proven time and time again it, it doesn't make you happy long-term to buy stuff. And the inc of increasing concern is, is climate change. So um, with fast fashion, you can buy, like, a new shirt for 20 bucks, but we have a huge problem with landfill and... Um, so not only does it not make us happier psychologically, it also does direct harm to keep buying stuff that you don't need, so it harms the planet. Uh, so I, I try and despise lots of secondhand stuff. Yeah. Um, that's where I'm at. And psychologically as well, like, you, like a lot of people that do shop are depressed when they, when they shop. Like that's been proven. <laughs> yeah, you get was, that little dopamine buzz. Yeah, I always think that the best part of shopping isn't the bit where you actually put what you've bought on. It's where you actually buy it and ring it, ring it through the till, and that's like just about as far as it goes. And then you just forget about it in your mm. wardrobe. I mean, that's essentially what fast fashion is about. It's about replacing your wardrobe at high speed, at low cost, to the detriment of the rest of the planet. Right. Right. Yeah. Are there any questions out there in the audience? Oh, yeah, we do. Here. Oh, hi right. there. Um, you were talking a bit about employers offering wellness programs for their staff and how it might be better just to um, reduce the stress on them in the first place so they don't need self-care. Um, I also think sometimes when they offer these programs, um, it's almost like the employer's blaming you for not exercising or for not meditating, so they put you on a resilience <laughs> training program 
that, that somehow you're supposed to do on top of work. Um, did you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's very, it's a very astute observation um, that you've made. Uh, it, it's absolutely, um, you know, they, they, they can twist your mind to make you think that unless you're engaging in these practices, then you're actually the architect of your own um, demise or your own unhealthiness. Um, having a day off work, like they're called mental health days for a reason. So good, like it's cold outside, you're really comfortable in bed, you don't want to go to work. Like to be able to, to, be able to just lie there in bed till like 1 p.m., it's nothing better, you know? It's, it's far better than these programs, so. Yeah. Some, someone I know who works at a really prestigious university in the UK um, has this policy where he's got a certain number of sick days per year and he will just take a sick day off, like, whenever he wants, even though he's not, even when he's not sick, because he's like, well, I'm legally allowed to take these sick days. I could very well be sick, who knows? And, you know, they've budgeted in my salary for me to take off these days anyway, so I may as well take them, which at the time I was so horrified by. But now I'm like, wow, that's genius. Yeah. But, but you're an employee, like, you, you're the editor of mm -hmm. Vice. Yeah. Like, how would you feel if one of your people... So well, I'm just gonna I feel like in. the 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 you know um, the unreasonable part of me who feels who would feel like I was being hard done by if someone took one of those days off, I'd be furious. But then the part of me that really respects it would be like, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Um, it might be a really naive question, but it looks like you found what makes you happy. Um, you've got this amazing house in the country, you love to garden, um, you love to be on stage. Why are you not just doing that? Which one of us? I don't have a house in the country, so... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for all of you, uh. you know, why aren't you doing self-care 24-7? Ah, uh, well, I, I don't actually enjoy living in the country, um, so... <laughs> so, it, so I'm moving back to Sydney in a couple of weeks, um, but... Uh, yeah, I don't drive, so I'm stuck out um, in the bush on like a dirt road um, without a television. Uh, so, um, yeah. Um, so a whole bunch of my work friends uh, at the beginning of the year, we were all sitting around and like it was really comical in retrospect because we are like, oh my gosh. We've got, we've got to get on board with meditation. Um, like we were, we were really feeling very bad about the fact that we weren't actually doing the amount of self-care that we should be doing, which was inherent, like in turn making us really stressed. Um, and like we kind of needed self-care from the pressure of self-care. Um, and I was like, and once again, I, I spreadsheet. Uh, so I was like, I was like, okay. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get my life in order in terms of self-care, and I'm going, like, and I'm gonna. Remember that term from like the mid '90s, uh, like the woman who has it all, um, where you know it's kind of Liz Lemon, sort of like, I can have a career and a baby and a social life, um, just minus baby and like uh, structural inequality um, around women. That was my sort of thing. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it all. I'm gonna have all the self-care. And keep and have a career and keep doing like my social life. And at that point, I was like, and I need to date and I need to do all this. And I was like, so I was doing meditation in the morning and then the gym and then going to work for 
seven and a half hours or whatever, and then coming home and doing like, you know, going on a date and then doing this and then like, and then meditation before bed and all this sort of stuff. And it was so much that at the end, I was going to do it for a whole month and then write an article about it. Instead, I did two weeks and got in incredibly sick <laughs> um, and then had two weeks on a sick bed and then never wrote about far it because out. I was so far behind. <laughs> so, oh yeah, self-care, self-care. There's a lot of pressure to have self-care. Yeah, I think so. I think there's also a lot of pressure to document what you're doing for self-care, like on social media. Like, I've got friends now who aren't journalists, they aren't celebrities, they're not being gifted things, it's not SponCon, but they're, you know, posting a selfie of themselves being like, went to, the, went to get a facial today. I'm like, why? Who cares? <laughs> you know, just come out for drinks with us. We'll tell you your face looks great. You don't have to put it on Instagram. Um, so I think that's, that's just one more added pressure. And I think that's the thing. It's like if self-care becomes this exercise in consumption that you then feel obliged to put to broadcast it to the rest of the world, it's not really taking care of yourself. It just becomes like an ego gratification massage thing. I think from the prism of, um, of being a person of colour and um, going back to the actual origins of self-care for people who are in the activist space, but then also just people of colour who work in corporate environments, have you noticed yourself seeing in the UK, has there been mass structural change from the top down for there to be more diverse representation of women, people of colour, so that more people can understand the nuances of...? No, absolutely not. <laughs> okay. Wow. And I think, I think there's been, people understand now that it looks bad if you see a lineup on a show and it's all white dudes, but there's no kind of deeper inherent understanding of why that's wrong. It's more like a, oh no, if we put that out, we're just going to get cancelled. You know, there's no kind of understanding that it's inherently a bad thing to have a really undiverse lineup on shows, on boards, on, you know, fail on panels, etc. Um, but there's no deeper wrestling with the reason why that might be a bad thing. Yeah. So it's almost like a weird cosmetic thing now where it's like, well, we shouldn't have this lineup because it looks bad. I don't even care about why it looks bad. We just have to do it anyway because, oh, the internet SJWs are going to come after us. So there's really not been that kind of sea change in the way that I think I would like to see. Yes. Um, and I don't know how, what it's like in Australia. It's, yeah. <laughs> Thought so. <laughs> We've got another question. Yeah, um, Self-care has become like huge business. Um, and I guess uh, from someone who does a lot of yoga and I'd go to the retreats, I actually really enjoy them. Um, it's kind of, um, I guess the question is, is um, what advice can you give to people who are looking to find a self-care regime uh, how would you recommend people go about finding how much time they need and what serves them best without being kind of like bought into the whole self-care machine that's marketed to us? Um, I think yoga's a really great thing to do. Uh, so, I mean, my advice with Inwellmania was try a whole different heap of different things. Like there's all these places where you can get a 30-day trial um, for like 30 bucks at various gyms or yoga studios. Do it, if you don't like it, go on to the next thing. Like, there's so many things that are around now that weren't around, say, 10 years ago, like um, trail running, you know, with, with groups of people and, um, you know, diff different types of hikes and, uh, you know, work out if you like to be alone or do stuff with others. So kind of, yeah, I, I think just 
experimenting is really great and um, not maybe laying down your credit card for a $2,000 yearly membership of something if it's not for you. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, I had, a, I had a lot of fun doing Wellmania because I gave myself permission to try everything, even if, like, I've been doing yoga now for 15 years, but I'm always in a beginner's class. Like, I'm terrible at it. <laughs> so terrible. Um, but, yeah, don't feel like you need to be the best. Um, don't feel like you need to be competitive with others. And just, like, maybe do a different thing each week. Um, yeah, for a month or something and see what happens. I don't know what... Yeah, I think also don't try and, you know, you know, if it's not working for you, it just doesn't work. And people beat themselves up a lot over not finding Pilates good. Like, I tried a Pilates class, and I was like, I literally don't understand what you're asking me to do. I don't know where my pelvic floor is. Um, <laughs> and just, and for the longest time, I was like, am I a failure? Because all my friends love Pilates. <laughs> and you know what? If it just doesn't work for you, it just doesn't work for you. I feel like there's a lot of weird moral baggage attached to self-care, where it's like, you have to take care of yourself to be a good person. You have to enjoy what you're doing to be a good person. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a completely personal choice and it's up to your own body and it's up to yourself as to what makes you feel good. Overcommit and overschedule until it all becomes horrible. <laughs> <laughs> we have another question. Hey. Uh, hi. Um, thanks for sharing on your view earl uh, earlier. You were mentioning, I think three of you were mentioning that you find um, actually giving to others and um, uh, tr trying to find be benefit for yourself by giving was actually a good way to self-care. What I want to understand here is what would you, how would you feel if actually giving to others wasn't necessarily uh, bringing back gratefulness around you so people actually don't be grateful or, and be satisfied for what I'm doing? Would you have that same actually feeling of being a fulfilled in terms of self-care? Or would you think, uh, I just need to ditch it and do something else? Um, I was actually talking about this yesterday with someone because um, my next book's on Stoicism and um, the philosophy behind that. And we were talking about if you give something to someone and they're not grateful, how, you know, should, what should your reaction be? And the Stoic way is that as long as you feel like you've done something good, it actually, you can't control people's reaction. Like, you have no control over pe other people's emotions or their responses. So as long as you're okay in yourself that you've done something good, kind of doesn't matter what, what other people think. I mean, if you're giving help and it's not wanted, um, mm. that's a different thing. But if you're just giving help to someone who maybe is in such a bad place that they are unable to really see the good act, then that's okay. I think if you're doing it to get praise, it's maybe not a great reason to do it. I don't know about you. Guys. Yeah, one thing I've noticed a lot with, you know, what's happening in the Amazon rainforest now is loads of Instagram influencers have obviously seen that it's trending. What, you know, maybe they feel bad about it. They want to do something to help. But they're posting all these photographs of themselves looking great. But the caption is stuff like, the Amazon is burning, guys. I'm so upset over it. If you want to donate, please donate to this charity. And I'm like... <laughs> I don't really know how to feel about it because on one hand, it's great they're raising awareness and they're doing something good, raising you know, money for charity. But on the other hand, it's packaged in such a weird, um, not self-oriented way where it's like, yeah. oh, it wouldn't do to like put a picture of the actual Amazon. It has to be myself to be on brand. 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I've massively like run away from the source of your actual question. But I think that's one thing that's also interesting about you know the idea of doing public good nowadays. It always has to, in some way, kind of upholster your brand. Yeah. And it's not enough to just simply be like a bad thing is happening. I want to do good. I want to do things. Something private. It has to be completely public. Mm, mm, I agree with you. We have another question. Hi. Hi. Um, when I think of like our generation being millennials, like I think that um, self care, like a lot of people preach self care, and I feel like that's just covering an issue that like internally we're not happy with our lives. I just want to hear your thoughts, like if that's something that you guys had, like when you do self care, when you practice self care, it's actually a result of you having these issues that you don't want to deal with. I mean, yeah, I, I think I think that's very much a case, but like, uh, it doesn't inherently have to be like something like, oh, I'm unhappy right now. I think for I think for a lot of people, it's like generationally there is a huge amount of fear, which you know, like, uh, I, I would say like climate change being the biggest one, but also you know, politics in general, just various bad things. Um, there, like, there's a, it's a real, like, it's going to be one of those, if we do manage to survive the climate change apocalypse, it's going to be a very interesting sort of thing to study how that manifests itself in psychology. Um, and, you know, already we're sort of, we're, we're seeing it being manifested in the sort of art that's produced. Like, a couple of, like, five years ago, everything was zombies because, you know, we were concerned about the apocalypse. Now we're not even concerned about the apocalypse because, like, because we know what's happening. So everything, every like, every comedy that's being written at the moment on TV is about being dead. <laughs> you know, like The Good Place, uh, Russian Doll, um, uh, that other one, um, uh, and like, and that's, and I think that is like, it is part of a uh, like a generational unhappiness um, with you know. And trying to and trying to work out the best way to sort of live and self care becomes a part of that. Like, how do you how do you get through uh, each day when you know that maybe uh, maybe we are like just being alive is an unethical act in terms of you know contributing to climate change, uh, but also like what what are we meant to do? What are, what are the best ways to do it? Um, yeah, a lot of I mean a lot of self care comes from trauma. Like it comes from. Like, I interviewed some people in my book that had had horrendous things happen to them. Mm. There was one guy um, I interviewed for the yoga section who'd been um, very, like, heavily touched by September 11. So he wasn't downtown at the time, but he got a job in downtown Manhattan a week later and was basically his commute to work was inhaling, you know, vaporised people. Um, and he ended up having, after... Nine months, ten months in this job, he had massive panic attacks and, and couldn't function, had to move back home, couldn't work. Um, and so he went to... He was put on all sorts of prescription drugs. Um, it further discombobulated him and then he wanted to learn how to meditate, but his brain was too um, hectic to, to be still. And so then he found yoga, which exhausted his body to then enable him to sit in peace and start meditating. And now he's like probably my favorite yoga teacher in the world. He's an incredible guy. But that was his journey of wellness. And it started with a traumatic event, you know, in 2001. And it, it had all these kind of um, 
and it had all these elements to it until he finally, you know, lighted upon this thing which was yoga, which allowed him to meditate. So um, absolutely it comes from, self-care comes from a place of wanting to right your own ship, yeah. And now he's giving back through his classes. Yeah, he's incredible, so nice. No, to him. Okay, I think we have time for one final question. Um, it seems to me like everyone I know either is a psychologist studying psychology or is going to see a psychologist. <laughs> um, how much do you think the psychology industry is being commodified as well? I need psychologists in my life, honey. Like, I really do. And I also need them to be black and Asian and queer, you know? So I don't think there's enough of them in, in my specific world. Mm. Um, for me, I, I, I definitely needed them during the marriage equality debate because I didn't realise how much I was being pounded down um, in that time and how unsafe I felt walking around in the streets of Sydney. Um, so I'm all for it. Mm. Everybody get a psychology degree, please. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> every, every Australian man needs to see a psychologist. <laughs> I mean, a lot of psychology is, is just is sharing, you know, is sharing what you're going through and getting a perspective on it and getting some tools to, to help you. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a good thing. I'd be really interested to know if, if there's been a spike in, in people um, seeking therapy. Uh, from what I've heard, in regional areas, it's really hard to get an appointment with yes. a psychologist. Um, and that the government subsidies for free counselling are, are nowhere near enough. Yeah, it's um, being exhausted. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think, I can't speak for Australia, but I know in the UK, again, it's the same thing, where uh, loads of people want to get on therapy um, and there are waiting lists for National Health Service to get to see a therapist that are months and months and months long. Um, actually, one part of my own self-care regime was I actually started paying for therapy. Um, and honestly, it's been really transformative for my mental health. And at one, one point, I was literally like, am I paying someone to just sit there and be like, does this remind you of anything in your past repeatedly over and over again? <laughs> um, but then something about it just works for me in a way that I can't really explain. Um, so I think in some ways, I feel like therapy is one of the few practices of self-care where that actually do benefit people. Totally. The only thing that sucks about it is that it's often really expensive and not very easily available in the government. Yes. Okay, I think we'll have to end on that very potent point. But thank you so much for your time, everybody, and thank you to our panellists. Thank you.